right. Well, today is the first uh, Sunday of Advent, which I can't believe it's already here. It seems like time flies. I just got over mourning the passing of summer, and now we're uh, celebrating Advent. And I think as a lot of you know, the word Advent means the arrival or the appearance. It's an expectation of a great uh, event to take place. Uh, sometimes in, in other ways it's used, like the advent of flight or things like that, where, where things like uh, you know, mechanized flight changed the way the world was. So it's, it's, a, it's the idea of, a, of an event that is going to be world-changing that takes place. And this, uh, first, the theme for the first Sunday, as far as I know, uh, I, I didn't grow up really celebrating Advent, so I have to kind of educate myself with Advent, is hope. And if it's not, well, it is for us. So uh, that's, what, that's what we're going to be talking about today, the idea of hope. And uh, I don't know what Christmas was like for you growing up, but for me, uh, my family, actually, I grew up uh, overseas a lot during my childhood years and didn't very often spend time with my extended family during Christmas. But there was a few times that uh, had the opportunity to be with my extended family, being aunts, uncles, and cousins. And uh, I remember as a kid, uh, Christmas seemed like it took years to go in between the two Christmases. You know, you just you know, felt like it was a whole lifetime in between. And uh, my family, they're a Christmas morning family, so they would open the presents on Christmas morning. And, uh, but the tradition was that before we opened presents, we had this big Christmas breakfast. And it was big. My, my grandmother and my mom and aunts uh, cooked as this huge meal, and we would all sit around, and when you had just this big family gathering, and the kids, this was a torturous, torturous time for the kids, because they, they had rolled out of bed like at six in the morning, ready to go, and the meal didn't happen until about nine, and then, you know, because all the adults, we didn't really, they didn't really want to get up all that early, and then, then we'd eat, and it wouldn't get over to about 10.30 or so, and during that time, the kids would be looking at the Christmas tree with all the presents and, and all this food that was going to be consumed. And one time, one of my aunts had this big plate of food that she had gotten. And one of my cousins looked at her. He was about five or six. And he just goes, are you going to eat all of that? <laughs> to which she got down and looked right at him in the face and said, yep. And I might go back and get some more. <laughs> And this story became such a kind of a tradition that it was told over and over again every Christmas. And that poor guy is like almost 60 now. And that story is still told on him about how, you know, this having to wait that last hour and a half was just misery for him. But it left a big impression on us as a family. So we've been going through the book of Malachi the last month or so. And we've seen that in Malachi there was this hope that was accompanying the arrival of the Messiah. Malachi talks uh, in terms of the first advent, the first coming of Christ. And here's one of the passages that we looked at uh, when we were going through Malachi last month. It says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me, being John the Baptist. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And remember that. You know, Jesus actually goes to the temple more than once, but the the one that he's probably talking about here is when he clears out the temple, because then he says, Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites 
and refined them like gold and silver. Remember, the, the priesthood which came out of the tribe of Levi. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. The offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. And Jesus even talks about how Abraham uh, had looked forward to the day of his coming. He was debating with, uh, with the elders and the chief priests and the Pharisees and going back and forth about who he was and the claims that he was making. And Jesus throws them this big curveball by saying this, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you have seen Abraham. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. This is a powerful statement. And the people in the temple understood what he was claiming right there, that he was claiming to be God among us. Before Abraham was, then he uses the name that God uh, uses when he uh, describes himself to Moses, tell them that I am. And one of the things about hope, when we talk about hope, and I'm sure you've heard this before. I, if you've been here, you've heard it, because we talk about it every time hope comes up. That biblical hope is more than wishful thinking. Biblical hope is expectation. There is an expectation that we are waiting for. It's not yet come, but we expect it to happen. And it's kind of like one of the ways you can kind of think about it is, you know, wishful thinking is like saying, well, you know, I hope someone shows up for dinner tonight at my house. I don't have any plans for anyone to show up. I haven't invited anybody to show up, but I hope they do. That's just kind of wishful thinking. You haven't really made any kind of plans for it. But hope with expectation is if you've invited someone to come to your house, then what do you do about two hours or three hours before they arrive? Do you just sit there and don't do anything? And then they knock on the door and you go, oh, well, here you are. Now I'm going to start cleaning up the house. Now I'm going to start making dinner. No. When you have an expectation, you begin to act on it. You begin to live as though it's already affecting your life, even though it hasn't happened yet. You invite someone for dinner, you start, at least Cindy and I, you know, about four or three hours before the people arrive, we start cleaning up the apartment. We live in a small place, so uh, maybe like some of you, uh, certain items go into the guest room. You just kind of push them in there and close the door and hope that no one goes in, you know, kind of tidy things up. You make dinner because you're expecting that they're going to show up. You, your life is affected by the expectation that they're going to show up, that the invitation is going to be followed through on. And this is what the Bible means when it talks about us living in Christ and living with the hope of Christ, that we are living in expectation. And this is why Jesus often warns us through the parables that our life is to reflect the expectation of Him coming or the, reflect the expectation of God being present in our life, either through the Holy Spirit or through the second coming, which Jesus talks about a lot. And he talks about it. It's like the, the parable of the ten virgins. You know, you need to be ready. You need to have oil in your lamp. He talks about it with the talents. You need to be ready. You need to be using your gifts and talents. The expectation that Jesus is going to return should affect your life. And so this is what we see when we talk about hope. It involves a process. Hope, with the Christian understanding of it being an expectation that's going to be fulfilled, it involves a process. Just like when you invite someone for dinner to your house, you don't sit there until they knock on the door before you begin to act on it. You're already acting on it 
before the event of the dinner takes place. In the same way, we're to be already acting on our faith before the event of Christ's coming. And I think sometimes as Christians, we kind of sit there waiting for this thing to happen. And in some people's minds, I know it's in their minds, well, it's then I'm going to get my act together. It's then I'm going to start living for Jesus when he comes back. Or, you know, I'm just waiting to die and then I'll be fine in heaven. And that is not what Jesus died on the cross for us to have. He died so that we would have life and have it abundantly and we would live it now. Our eternal life begins the moment that we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord and our sins are forgiven and we are considered righteous. We are then on the path to eternity. And I believe this is one reason why Jesus was born as a baby because Jesus could have come, Christ could have come, the Christ, the Messiah, in the title there, could have come as a full-grown man. Why not? But he chose to come as a baby. And I think that one of the reasons why God did this is to illustrate this whole idea of the journey of hope. That hope involves a process. Hope involves a process that we live in with expectation. And in the story of Jesus, I mean, his birth is one of fragility. You know, he's a, he's a baby. He's born in a manger. The family is in kind of a fragile place at that time. It's a precarious beginning. You know, we have King Herod that tries to hunt him down after a couple of years. He thinks he's about two years old when that happens. But it's also this long-awaited fulfillment that the Old Testament prophets, Malachi, for example, were looking forward to in hope. It was an expectation fulfilled in Christ. And this is an expectation which started with the promise given to Abraham. And I find it interesting that, you know, the, just kind of where, you know, where my mind is, because I live in this particular moment of history, is that, you know, the time between Abraham and the birth of Christ was about the same amount of time as the birth of Christ and where we are today. It was about 2,000 years between Abraham's promise given to him and the birth of Christ and the birth of Christ and where we're at today. And I imagine that for those who understood who Jesus was, and I don't know, frankly, I don't really know if even Mary and Joseph really fully understood what he was going to be, what it would mean that he was Emmanuel, God with us. But for maybe, maybe uh, there was a few that kind of understood that he was Messiah, those years of growing up must have been years of great anticipation as, as they were waiting to see how is he going to fulfill this role. And we know from the Gospels, his brothers, and, and they didn't really get who he was. In fact, one of his brothers kind of mocks him one time, tells Jesus, you know, if you're going to be a big someone, then you need to make an appearance. You need to show up in Jerusalem. And Jesus, uh, Jesus kind of holds back until the rest of them go, and then he goes. But you can tell that there was this, a lot of them didn't really understand who he was going to be, how that was going to be expressed. Maybe the ones that kind of understood were this, this old guy named Simeon that was in the temple and an old woman that was in the temple named Anna. When they saw the baby Jesus brought to the temple for circumcision, they knew that this was the Messiah. But we don't know if they lived long enough to see him coming to that full manhood when he becomes and acts in his, in his ministry. But if you knew, I mean, watching, this, watching him grow must have been excruciatingly long. Like my cousin found those that last hour and a half of breakfast before Christmas morning to seem to last forever, this journey of hope must have felt like it took forever as Jesus was going towards what he would be, that full realization of the hope expressed in the, New Test in the Old Testament found and fully realized, a hope that was going to be for people of the Jewish background as well as 
the non-Jewish background. And the Apostle Paul talks about this. He refers to another prophet who talks a lot about the coming Messiah, the expectation of the first coming of Messiah, which is Isaiah. And Isaiah has several chapters where he really gets into some pretty bang-on details about who Jesus was and, and how he would be in the world. And it says this, the root of Jesse will spring up. Jesse was King David's father. So the root of Jesse will spring up, the one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. This was extraordinary. It seems like most of the Jews kind of just read right over the idea that the Gentiles would also be part of the kingdom that the Messiah would bring into place. Because even during the time of Jesus, the fact that he was around people who were non-Jews would put them off. They would, they would get upset with him for that. And even though this is expressed in the, in the Old Testament. And then Paul comes in with a commentary behind that. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the call here is that we live in this place of expectation. We live in this place where our lives is already being changed by not just the first advent, but also by the expectation of the second advent. It is a fulfillment of prophecy. And I think sometimes we don't really get how extraordinary we live in this place of history where we can look back on so much fulfillment of prophecy. Sometimes I hear people on the news and people on YouTube or whatever, and they'll talk about how Jesus isn't, you know, how faith and religion and Christianity is just nonsense. And I wonder, do you have any concept of what was written and what has taken place? And I think the answer to that simply is no. They don't have much of a concept of that. They just think that they know the scripture because they maybe went to Sunday school a few times when they were a kid, or maybe even through their childhood. But I can tell you, because I've experienced it myself, only having a biblical knowledge that comes from Sunday school as a kid is like being on the shore of the beach of the ocean up to your ankles without going into how deep the possibilities really are out there. And as you get into the scripture, as you begin to watch history, you begin to see all these things connecting together. You realize, how is this deniable? Yet people do. But as believers, we live in this place. We live in the place between Advents where we have a hope fulfilled. We can look back on and say God was faithful. He was faithful to the prophecies of the Old Testament fulfilled in the birth of the Messiah. And therefore, we can look forward to the second Advent with confidence, not just wishful thinking, but with confidence because we have this history that we can look over our shoulder and say, look at all that has happened. The Apostle Paul also talks about this. He says this when he talks about prophecy. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. In other words, you know, we, we don't know everything now. There is, there's still something coming which, which we can expect and we can have kind of, we can speculate on what that's going to be like, but we don't really know until we're there. So we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. There is going to be a time when hope is going to be realized, when the expectation is going to be realized. Just like there's a time when that person does show up for dinner, and you have the dinner, and you have the, the time together, you have the conversation. It is that expectation coming to fruition. There's going to be that for us. And then he says, and that's going to change the way we view the world. It's going to blow our minds. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, 
I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now, and we can even say this about us now, we see but a poor reflection in a mirror. We have an expectation. We have a hope. We're just not entirely exactly sure what that all is going to look like. We have it in the Revelation, some of what that's going to look like. But you know that the guys that wrote Revelation, seeing that vision, they were trying to put words to something that was just beyond words. Now we, know, uh, now we see as a poor reflection in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And why is love the greatest? Well, there's going to come a time, and we live in that expectation of that now, when that hope is going to be fulfilled, when the hope of being in the presence of God is going to be fulfilled. So you don't have to hope for it anymore. It'd be like going with this dinner uh, illustration. It'd be like after the dinner, you get done, and everyone goes home, and you're cleaning up, and you go, boy, I hope someone shows up for dinner tonight. That would make no sense, because they did show up. The hope, the expectation was fulfilled. There's going to be a day we will live in that place where the hope, the expectation will be fulfilled. And it's the same with faith. You know, faith, the scripture talks about faith in those things not seen. But there's going to be a day we won't have to have faith in things not seen. It's going to be seen. We're going to be in the presence of God. The scripture tells us he'll be dwelling with us. We will be dwelling with him. It won't be this place of, gee, I wonder if God really is there. We'll know that. It'd be, it'd be as foolish to say, is God really there as it would be for you to say, is Jeff really there? Is he really standing there in front of me? Or is this just an illusion? It's not, by the way. You're not, you're not the center and, and everything around you is this matrix, which Elon Musk seems to try and tell us. You know, it's real. You don't have to have faith that you're going to hear a sermon this morning. You're hearing it. You know, faith fulfilled. But love Love is going to always be dynamic. Love is going to always be growing. Love is going to always be relational. Love is going to always have an aspect of the new to it. It always will. Because the love of God is something that we will never be able to find the end to. We will never be able to plummet to its depths and say, there it is. There's the end of love. But until then, we wait. And sometimes it feels like this period between the Messiah's salvation being made available to us through the cross and the final reckoning of judgment is the longest wait of all. And people have been waiting and waiting and waiting. The scripture even talks about it. In Peter, he says, you know, God is not, uh, people have been making fun of the early church. They say, where is, where is this coming Christ? And Peter has to say, God does not basically measure time the same way you do. To him, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. You know, you can't go by our expectations. I find it interesting when we went through Matthew, it struck me how often when Jesus talks about the second coming, he would often say, the master went away for a long time, or the persons were gone for a long time, and the servants began to think, he's not coming back. The long time is mentioned every time that Jesus talks about these parables, like the talents. The master gives the talents, he goes away to a foreign land, read it, it says, and he was a long time coming. There is an expectation, Jesus tells us, of a long time wait. But Abraham managed to wait 2,000 years. 
That hope of Abraham was 2,000 years from the time that he was basically given the, the promise that from his seed would come a nation, and from that nation would come the Messiah. So we're not in an extraordinarily unprecedented long time. We're very much in a biblical pattern of length and time. But sometimes it's hard. And people have waited the second coming, and I, I tell folks this all the time, especially when COVID was going on, and you know, people are like, this is it, this is it, this is it. And maybe. But almost every generation has thought they're the last generation since Christ. And there's always been some big events that you can look at and say, oh, here's the reason why they thought they were that last generation. And so far, no one's been right that they're the last generation. We have a tendency to think that what we're going through in our particular point of history is the most important time in all of history because we're just a little bit self-centered by nature. You know, since I'm here in history right now, this must be the most important time of history. We never say that out loud, but we kind of live that way. And it's normal. We just have to have our eyes open to realize that every generation has thought, this is it. I'm part of the last generation. There was a guy, though, in uh, about 250 years ago. His name was John Wesley. And some of you probably heard of John Wesley. John Wesley was the, the guy that founded a movement which eventually became known as the Methodist movement. And if you've ever heard of the Methodist church, John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist church. And it was called Methodist because he had a very strict method of discipleship. And, uh, and that's why they became known as the Methodist. And his brother was named Charles Wesley. And Charles Wesley was, would become no, known over time as one of the greatest hymn writers in history. And there was a time in, in 1744 when Charles Wesley was living in London. He was not just disturbed, but kind of depressed by what he saw in London. And one of the things that really depressed him was that he saw how orphans were just living on the streets in London. They didn't have anyone taking care of them. There wasn't really a social net. A few of them would find them places in orphanages, but the orphanages were, were no comfortable place. If any of you have ever seen or, or read the book Oliver Twist, written by Charles Dickens, it's kind of this idea of the orphans and, and the misery that they were in. And just like today, they were exploited for everything, for uh, industry. They were often taken off the street and made to work in factories. Uh, sexual exploitation, everything you can imagine. And Charles Wesley was really brokenhearted by the whole thing. And he wrote a poem. And the poem was published in a newspaper in London. And that poem later became a well-known hymn. And it's a poem that is longing for the expectation of Christ's coming. And it goes like this. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sin, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the world thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. 
And the longing in this song that was written 250 years ago is still felt in our hearts today. It's a longing for that time when we will actually get to live the world's words found in Revelation which says this. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. This is hope fulfilled. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. We're going to end today's sermon by singing that poem from Charles Wesley and uh, have the worship team come on up. And uh, as we sing it, sing it with this understanding that this is what he was talking about. He was talking about the longing for hope fulfilled and how the coming of Christ is the beginning of that hope being fulfilled. And we look forward to when he comes again, when that final hope, where we are in that presence of God, is finally realized. This is going to be our ending song as well. Like we usually have a uh, closing song. You're not given the option to go uh, take a walk in the woods, though, because we're still in sermon time here. So <laughs> go ahead. Why don't you stand with us? And uh, we'll sing through this uh, twice.
Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come and celebrate in this time that you've allowed us to live. A time where we are in between uh, hope fulfilled and hope expected. And Lord, may we share with people who are very cynical about who you are and what it means to be on this planet and what it means to be following you in faith. May we share with them that they are also living in a blessed time where they have the opportunity to look back over history and see how much your word has been fulfilled. And with that confidence, we can look forward to seeing what is going to come. And we thank you that you've allowed us in this place to be drawn to you in that place of salvation so that we can live this life as more than just passing time and waiting to die. But we can live it with a life built around the expectation that we will be with you, either upon our own death or upon your return. We will be with you. And may that be the thing that guides us, especially in this season where we have the opportunity to be generous, to give, to be light, to be salt in the world, to be a people of hopeful expectation. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.